0: Good morning, everyone. Again, Alan and the team thank you guys for a wonderful time of worship. If you've been with us over the last couple of weeks, you'll know that we've been in the life of Gideon. We've been in a series that we've called God Beyond Our Circumstances, and uh, we followed the journey of Gideon. This is what we've seen. We've seen God take an unimportant man, convince him to take a stand against the Baal worship that existed in his community, gather an army of people, Have God whittle that army down to just 300 men, and then defeat an army 450 times the size that he had, and then punish some Israelites who refused to help him in that battle. That's that's what we've seen so far in the life of Gideon. Now we need to bring the story in the life of Gideon to an end. And So I've titled my message today, Lessons in the Aftermath. And we're going to look at the end of Gideon's story in Judges chapter 8 from verses 22 to 35. And in that story, we're going to see the aftermath of the battle and the last uh, very short snapshot of the last 40 years of Gideon's life. And I believe as we look at the story, we're going to find lessons in the story that came out of the aftermath of that story that are going to be applicable for us in our own aftermath and what we've been through as a church. So we're going to read the whole story together, and then we're going to go back, and we're going to look at it under three headings. And I believe we're going to see in the story what I consider three mistakes that have been made by the Israelites and by Gideon, and that there's an opportunity to learn from the mistakes of those who have gone before us. So that's what we're going to do together this morning. You're welcome to read along with me on the screen, or else you can turn in your own Bibles to Judges chapter 8 from verses 22 to 35. says this, the Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, your son and your grandson, you your son and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you, the Lord will rule over you. And he said, I do have one request, that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder, as it was the custom of the Ishmaelites, who were also the Midianites, same people, to wear gold earrings. They answered, we will be glad to give them. And so they spread out a garment, and each of them threw a ring from his plunder onto it. And the weights of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels. That's about 20 kilograms of gold. It's a goodly amount of gold, right? Not counting the ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian or the chains that are around their camel's neck. Gideon then took the gold and he made it into an ephod, which he placed in opera his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshipping it there and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. During Gideon's lifetime, the land had peace for 40 years. Jeroboam, which is another name for Gideon, son of Joash, went back home to live. He had 70 sons of his own, for he had many wives. His concubine, who lived in Shechem, also bore him a son, who he named Abimelech, Gideon, son of Joash died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in opera of the Abizrites. No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up baal as their god, and they did not remember the Lord their god who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They also failed to show any loyalty to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in spite of all the good things that he had done for them. Okay, that's the end of Gideon's story. If you carry on reading in Judges, you will read the story of his son, and it's quite a sad story, so feel free to do that in your own leisure. Let's take a moment and let's look at it piece by piece. Let's take a look at Israel's first mistake, verses 22 and 23. The Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. In the, this is the opening statement that we have in this section of the narrative. And do you notice something immediately out of, this, out of this statement that we see here from the Israelites? Do you notice how the Israelites have, have misunderstood the deliverance that they have received? They immediately look to Gideon. They say, well, you rule over us. You delivered us from the hand of Midian. Gideon, you're, you're the man. You're the guy. You've done it before, and you're going to be able to keep doing it for us. If you lead us, things are going to continue to go well for us. That's what they're thinking. Right? And that's, that's not an unusual way to think. Let's be fair. That's totally understandable. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, Gideon's just done something pretty remarkable. He's led an army of 300 and defeated an army of 135,000. Not a lot of people in history have done that. Can you see the flaw in their logic there? The flaw in their thinking. See, the Israelites have already begun to conflate Gideon and God together in their minds. And Gideon knows that as soon as that happens, the distinction between God and his leader is going to begin to blur. And over time, the people are going to forget God who is intangible, who is spirit, who is not flesh and blood. And they're just going to remember the man and the person. I don't know if you, I don't know if you can feel the irony that's laden in this moment in the story. Right. Do you remember in chapter 7 when we looked at, at the story of God whittling down Gideon's army? God, God says this. He says, listen, Gideon, you got, at this point I think he's got 10,000 men. He says, you have too many men. 10,000 against 135, but there's too many, Gideon. Right? So I cannot deliver Midian into your hands, or Israel would boast against me, saying my own strength has saved me. God is quite wise. God is quite wise. Did you notice that? He, he's, he's quite sharp. He understands how human nature works. And so already before the battle, he's like, listen, get in. You've got to watch out because you guys are going gonna to look to yourselves. He, he sees this flaw that exists in us as people, in our human nature. And he acted to deter it, but even despite his actions, the sinful nature of man just kind of wins out. And the allure of the physical, of the flesh and blood, of the reality, of the things that we can see and feel and smell and touch overpowers the intangible and the spirit and the things that we can't see. And the Israelites reach out and they look to Gideon to be their deliverer. See, at its base, the people of Israel don't know how to trust in God without a human representative. They don't know how to trust in the Lord without Gideon. They cannot see how the Lord can deliver them, and they're they're trusting for a physical deliverance for any future enemies. They can only see God doing that through a person, through Gideon in particular. They can't separate God and Gideon anymore. They can't conceptualize God acting without a conduit. So what they've begun to do is they've actually chosen to place their faith in a man rather than in God. What does that mean for us, church, in our own aftermath? We've been blessed. I really want to say this. We've been blessed as a church to have seen God work through us and in us by some mighty, godly men. John and in Howard. Men who have blessed me immeasurably in my own faith journey. And as they step back, I want to ask us together this morning, do we have the courage to see the God who was beyond them? Or are we going to pine over what we've lost and seek to regain regain them, either in their person or in position? Now, please don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not in a position to make any definitive statements about who we're going to call and what position they're going to come in. That's not my responsibility. I don't have that authority. But I'm asking us to consider this. Who are we trusting in? Israel wanted Gideon to be their king. And they wanted Gideon to be their king in case one of the other nations around them came To oppress them again. Because it wasn't just the Midianites. There were the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Philistines and these guys and those guys. There's a whole bunch of nations around them looking to overpower Israel at any given opportunity. And if you read through the book of Judges, you'll see them do that over and over again in different generations. See, Israel wanted Gideon to be their king because they knew they would probably need deliverance again. But they forgot that their deliverance didn't come from Gideon. Gideon wasn't some super powerful Trojan warrior that was able to take out hundreds of thousands of men. Their deliverance came from God, but they did not have the faith to believe that God could do it again if Gideon wasn't there. So church, our challenge out of this first mistake that Israel makes is this, and I want to ask you, are we able to trust God without the key charismatic leader? Can we survive the confusion and follow God beyond it? Can we trust that if God was the one who brought about deliverance for Israel, he can and he will do it again for us no matter who the leader is and turns out to be? Let's take a look at the next part of the story. This is where Gideon steps up to the plate and makes his mistake. He's just rejected being king, but then he says to them, I do have one request. That each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. And they answered him, We'll be glad to give you an earring. And they spread out on the garments and they each threw a ring on it, and there was a whole lot of gold. And Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in opera his tongue. So before we dig into this and and apply this to our our space and our journey. Uh, Let's take a moment to explain what's all going on here because it's not necessarily overtly obvious in this section of the story. Gideon has taken a small amount of the plunder, which I think is fair enough, and he's chosen to use it, either in whole or in part, to create a priestly garment. That's what an ephod is. That word is unfamiliar to you. It's a beautifully decorated, gold-embroidered, divinely sanctioned garment. That God told the priests to wear whilst they were carrying out their priestly duties. That's what the ephod is. Secondly, there's a phrase that is used in this passage that that I think is probably a euphemism. Right? And it's this phrase which he placed in opera, his town. What the author is not saying is that Gideon made this beautiful priestly garment, then he built a lovely glass case, and he made a lovely plaque, and he put it in the case, and he built a museum around it, and all Israel came down and bowed down to the ephod. That's actually not what's been... I know I said that a little flippantly, but that's not really what the author intends us to understand. What's far more likely is that Gideon made this ephod, and then he would wear it, and from time to time, he would perform some of those priestly duties such as seeking the Lord for revelation or offering sacrifices on behalf of the people, bearing in mind that those are both activities he's done before. So then the question becomes, well, if that's what he's doing and he's the leader that God has used and God has already, you know, he's already given sacrifices to the Lord and God has already spoken to him, what's wrong with him continuing to play that role in this way? We find the answer to that in a number of places in the Old Testament. Perhaps the one that's most succinct is in Numbers chapter 3. And I'm just going to read you a few excerpts. It's not going to be on the screen of of what's said in Numbers chapter 3. But it says this in verses 2 and 3. It says, The name of Aaron's sons, when Nadab, he was the oldest, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, these sons of Aaron were anointed and ordained to minister as priests in Israel. Verses 6 and 7. Call forward the tribe of Levi and present them to Aaron, the priest, to serve as his assistants. They will serve Aaron and the whole community, performing their sacred duties in and around the temple, or the tabernacle, sorry. In verses 9 and 10, assemble the Levites and Aaron and his sons. They have been given from among all the people of Israel to serve as their assistants. Appoint Aaron and his sons to carry out the duties of the priesthood. But any unauthorized person who goes near the sanctuary must be put to death. Okay. It's one of the passages in the Old Testament that describe the setting aside of Aaron and his sons and the tribe of Levi for the special duties that God has given over to them. And what, what we see in this is that it is only Aaron and his sons who are able to be priests in Israel, which is why when you read the book of Hebrews, the author goes on a long journey to explain to you how Jesus is a high priest of another lineage and another line, which is greater than Aaron's line because he needed to do more than Aaron was able to do because only Aaron and his sons were able to be priests in Israel. And only the Levites could serve in the tabernacle and in the temple. Their duties were sacred. They were holy. They were set apart. There was no one else who was able to do them. Anyone else who attempted to do them would die. And the tabernacle, we see, is the place where God had designed and designated that these functions should be performed for the whole community of Israel. There was no other place where that should happen because the tabernacle was the place where the presence of God dwelt. That was where you would go to meet with God and to encounter his presence. So Gideon falls prey to a similar sin to the people of Israel in that he overestimates his own worth and he does what he thinks is right in his own eyes rather than remaining obedient to the calling that God had for him. The caution for us is we look at our own aftermath. And I think it's, it's first for us as leaders but it extends to us all. And it's at its heart, it's a call for us to be aware of pride. To beware of pride, especially pride that cloaks itself in piety. Because when we consider Gideon, I think, I really think it's probable that what Gideon did was, was a honest mistake. I don't think he was being malicious in what he was doing. You need to recognize the Spiritual situation of the people of Israel. The reason they're being oppressed by the Midianites is because God is judging them because they have failed in their worship of God. They have stepped away from the temple. They have ignored God's laws. And they're doing their own thing. They're worshiping Baal. Remember the first thing Gideon does is cut down the Asherah pole. The Aaronic priesthood, the spiritual leadership of Israel has lost face. And the people have have stopped worshiping God. And so Gideon decides, there's a gap here. There's a problem here, and God has used me in this space. So maybe I should continue to operate in this space. You can see how that idea makes sense. And I think Gideon allowed the love of the people and the pressure that they put on him to lead to blind him to the prior and the previous plan and designation of God. And in reality, I believe Gideon chose the less courageous path. See, he chose to play the role of priest when it suited him. But if he really had concern for the people of Israel and the spiritual state of the people, he would have done what some of the kings that succeeded him did. Later on in the book of Kings, you'll see there were some godly kings. And they went on a spiritual reform in the land of Israel. They called the people of Israel back to the true and the right worship of Yahweh. They reestablished the temple. They rediscovered the books of the law. They recalled back people to the the festivals and the things that God had called them to, but that's not what Gideon does. In fact, verses 30 and 31 give us some evidence of the life that he lived after his victory. They don't say a lot, but they allow us to infer something. Gideon's description of his life in these verses is not like the description of any other priest in the history of Israel. Gideon had many wives and concubines and he had 71 sons and presumably a similar number of daughters because we are unable to control the, you know, exactly whether we get sons or daughters. What you need to know is in Israel's history only men of power and influence practiced polygamy. There's a reason for that. Wives are expensive. Right? Some of you who are married may know I hope I'm not getting myself in trouble here or any of you in trouble. right? But, but it's not as... It's not simple. It's not easy. you have got 70 different wives to appease. that's has got to take a lot of time, energy, and resources. And yet again, this is contrary to the commands that God has given, albeit he's given these commands to a future king. So God anticipated that sometime Israel would have a king. And so in Deuteronomy 17, in verse 17, he says this, The king must not take many wives for himself, because they will turn his heart away from the Lord. And he must not accumulate for himself large amounts of silver and gold. And yet that's really the description that we read of of Gideon's life. See, Gideon ends his life with the appearance of piety, but he's actually walked into sin and he's led Israel into sin because of his pride. Church, as your leaders, the call we have is to resist the same temptation, to take an easy road that's of our own making. We are charged with the responsibility to diligently seek God's wisdom and His direction. Whatever that might mean for us, whatever position that might or might not put us in, that's not the point. We're called to seek God and what He's saying. And we need to be ever vigilant for the sin of pride that that we might not think of ourselves more highly than we ought. That we might not think of ourselves as indispensable and necessary for God to do something that God can do. And in doing that, that we might not miss the actual thing that God desires. No matter how well-meaning we might be. That's Gideon's mistake in our second lesson. And the third one is the consequence of what Gideon does. It's the second half of verse 27. And it's the sin that Israel enters into as the result of the sin that Gideon entered into. Verse 27b says, this, it says, all Israel prostituted themselves by worshipping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. This verse describes the consequences of his sin in the context of the people of Israel. See, the people chose to follow their man of influence. And in doing so, they rejected the call of God, and they turned back to the sin from which Gideon had been raised up in order to deliver them in the first place. Israel chose to follow a leader rather than God. They got caught up with a person rather than the God who walked, worked through that person. And as I was reading this section of the story, it, just, it drew me back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Some of you may be aware of that passage in 1 Corinthians 3, but Paul speaks to the church in Corinth about the way in which they associate with leaders. And he says, guys, you are so worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like, like mere humans when one says, well, I follow Paul, and the other says, well, I follow Apollos. Are you not merely human beings? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? We're just servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord assigned to each his task. I, mean, I planted the seed, Apollos watered the seed, but God has been the one who's been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. He uses this illustration. I've recently planted some sunflowers in our back garden. They're very pretty, really beautiful, like a meter tall, stunning. You know what I did? I, I took some of the sunflower seeds that I'd bought to put in my food, and I put them in the soil, and occasionally I watered them, and a few months later, boom, we had a sunflower. I don't know how that happens I don't know what God put into this tiny little seed that was this size to create this beautiful flower I don't know how they grew I didn't make that happen God made it happen I think this is one of those things that that we're really good at knowing here and it's a lot harder to live here as because as we as we grow and as we relate to leaders we form bonds with leaders that we trust don't we I mean, that's quite a normal thing, and it's good for us to find people and voices who will speak life and truth into our lives. It's good to find teachers who will help you to grow and to mature in your faith, whose teaching is faithful to Scripture and through whose ministry you become more like Jesus. That's a good and a beautiful thing. And the more that we grow and trust the teaching of that leader, the more we tend to grow and trust the character of that person. Sometimes to the point where we get... We get rocked when we suddenly realize that that person has fallen or sinned in some way. We just need to look at some of the prominent examples that have happened in the recent history of the church to see how easily and how quickly that happens. But it's good for us to form these bonds. It's a normal thing for us. It's it's how God designs us to function together in community. But friends, it comes with a danger. It comes with a danger. And it's the danger to accept the decisions of our leaders with our critical thoughts and the danger to rationalize choices and behaviors that we might make that are flagrantly contrary to Scripture. And if you had to go and examine some of those leaders and how they have fallen in the recent past, you will see people were raising flags and they were saying, hey, but this thing that's going on, this is not right. But I'm sure he had a good reason. And the. Questions get silenced. Paul counseled the Galatian church. Galatians chapter 6 verse 1. He said, brothers and sisters, if another believer is caught in a sin, those of you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. But man, be careful that you don't stumble at the same time in the same temptation. And Friends, this side of eternity Inside the body of Christ, none of us are free of the snares of sin that exist for us. Each of us is vulnerable. Each of us is fallible. And no individual, no leader will get it right all the time. As we have humility and grace for one another, as we keep seeking to keep our hearts and our lives aligned to our King, God will restore us along the way and help us to keep following Him. So as we sit here together this morning in our own aftermath, I have a question for us to consider together. It's a question for us to consider deep in our hearts, and the question is, have we trusted too much in a leader rather than in God? Maybe I can ask it to you this way. Who's been your person on the leadership team, the person that you really trust, the person you would go to when you had questions and you wrestled with things? Was it John? Was it Howard? Is it Shells or Joe? Is it Trev? Is it Roland? Is it myself? Is it Shane? Is it Tom? Is it is it Mark, Jeff or John? Was it Craig? If it was John or Howard, I'm sure you're feeling a really big vacuum in the place where they stood. I know I am. Perhaps it was one of the rest of us. Maybe one of us or all of us have let you down or disappointed you in a way. Here's my question to you though. Can you look beyond the servants and see the God who brings the growth? Can you trust that the God who has brought us thus far will carry us home? You know, at the AGM, we watched a video where we saw Mercia and Yvonne and Avril and help me, Margaret. And they shared with us what God had done over the last 50 years in this church. And it was beautiful to see. Do you think they did it? Do you think the church that they built back then came to become this church because of what they did? Or did Jesus build his church as he promised he would? as faithful men and women followed him. Friends, our God is faithful. Our God is faithful. He is the God who finishes what he starts. He's not finished with us yet. He's still at work. This is still his church. He is still the head of it. He is still building it. And he is going to do wonderful things as we follow him together. I'm going to close for us this morning in communion because communion is a beautiful symbol of placing Jesus at the center. So for our friends who are joining us online, I will invite you to go and take communion by yourselves with your families. It will be a wonderful opportunity for you to do that.